0: Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly.
1: And I'm Darren Franich, a senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. And Jeff, we did not just watch part 11 of twin peaks the return we had a full 360 degree maybe even more than that is there more than 360 degrees whatever is more than 360 degrees that's how we experienced this week's episode uh jeff do you want to kind of talk a little bit about all the twin peak stuff we've been doing the last few days
0: Yes, well, just to answer your question, I think there is more than, uh, there are more than 360 degrees in in the multiverse. You just have to pass through the black hole sun into the domain of the woodsmen on their stairs to experience that strange physics. Um, But yes, speaking of strange (laughs) physics, we were in the strangest place in America this past week. We were in Comic-Con where Twin Peaks had a Um, huge presence down at San Diego at the annual Geek Mardi Gras Twin Peaks uh, Occupied Hall H. There was a great panel that was hosted by Lost co-creator, Leftovers co-creator, and friend of the podcast, Damon Lindelof. And uh, many uh, members of the cast were there, Kyle McLaughlin, Naomi Watts, Tim Roth, Uh, the late Matthew Lillard, (laughs) God rest your head-blown soul there, Bill (laughs) Hastings, and uh, um, James Marshall, Dana Ashbrook, Kimmy Robertson, Don Murray, who plays Bushnell Mullins. Um, It was was a really good group. It was a really fun panel. But uh, another huge highlight for both of us, in addition to you, getting to interview the uh, Twin Peaks cast at our EW studios. And I'll let you talk about that. But we also got to watch the episode part 11 in a special screening uh, late night at Comic-Con on Saturday night on Friday night.
1: Yeah, I mean, this Friday at Comic-Con was my absolute favorite Comic-Con day ever. Like there's no way it's ever going to get any better than that like, for me personally. Um, you know, got to speak to the cast of, of Twin Peaks, people can watch that interview. It's up on ew.com. Uh, the great Everett McGill was there and it was so delightful talking to him because of course, Big Ed has not yet appeared on the season. But in fairness, <laughs> in, in in fairness and you know, I think that the actors would sort of agree with this, like as much as I sort of knew going in, I'm probably not going to get any scoop on what's to come this season. It's also the kind of show where I'm not so sure that we, between all of us, could you know adequately describe what's happened already on the season. But so great talking to him, and uh, I would just say he had my favorite uh, fan theory of the season because when I asked him where Big Ed was, he said, "Oh, Big Ed's been in every <laughs> scene. He's just sleeping." Which, which now I'm going to go back and rewatch. <laughs> All ten parts sort of uh, with that in my head. But yeah, Jeff... The screening was so, like, awesome. And I also think, um, you know, you'd been kind of tweeting about this last night. There were a few shots in particular that we might talk about later that were so stunning and seemed to sort of deserve the big screen treatment. And it really made me excited for whichever theater, you know, in Los Angeles or New York or some, you know, hip hip uh, repertory theater somewhere. Someone is going to do the 18-hour Twin Peaks The return marathon. And when that happens, I I am totally there for it. Uh, I might have to sleep through a couple of hours. But, you know, I think Lynch might might appreciate that if, you know, you sort of you you watch a lot of Twin Peaks, then dream half of it and then kind of come back for the grand finale.
0: And we don't tell you this to brag about an experience that you don't get to have. That must just sound like the most annoying thing in the world. Like, why are you telling me about this? I would like to make a big deal out of it only because the revelation of that experience was that there definitely, as you said, needs to be a theatrical run of this show somewhere and... Um, I think everyone should lobby for it because what it opened my eyes to was just how how much of a different experience it is to watch it with a group of people on a big screen with that kind of sound system and that group energy, how much I was was more scared by things, but also like the the comedy just plays so much better. Like when, when you're with a group of people, like I watched it again last night on my TV by myself and it's just like, it was funny, but the, but the energy of being in a room of people laughing together at things like everything from like, you know, just obvious laugh lines, like David Lynch's Gordon Cole saying he's dead when he <laughs> looks at Bill Hastings with that perfect deadpan, was so funny, but there are other moments that are hysterical that you don't really appreciate on a smaller screen, and other people picked up on and laughed at. That, like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into this in a second, but that moment where Gordon Cole beholds the vile vortice, vortex, black hole sun raging in the sky above Buckhorn. And when we're in that space with him, we hear it and we see it. But then, then we cut to this shot, this uh, wide establishing shot, where we realize that not everyone around Gordon is seeing the same thing. So he just looks like a guy who's just waving at the sky. And on my smaller TV, Darren, that didn't play funny. That just played like information, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, that's just those people. This we're, we're seeing it kind of from their perspective. And so we understand that they're not seeing it. In the room, on a big screen, that played super funny with the crowd to the point that, uh, Kimmy Robertson, who was also in there, <laughs> I don't remember this, Darren, like she was watching it, laughing so hard she fell out of her seat. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, you that know, it might've been as entertaining as, as the moment itself.
1: The theater was totally silent and then just suddenly Kimmy Robertson's laugh just seemed to fill the whole auditorium. It was, <laughs> it was wonderful. But uh, let's let's dig in, Jeff. Let's talk Buckhorn here, because um, after. Uh our previous check-in with Bill Hastings and, and with the FBI crew, I kind of thought we'd have a lot more time before they went to the coordinates. And instead, it was like we cut with them to them going to this anointed place where Bill Hastings and Ruth Davenport went to meet the major. Um, you know, th- throughout Lynch's work, there's always these interesting interesting idea of these spaces where, you know, multiple dimensions seem to linger and where the these bizarre, not always good epiphanies can happen. Um, How did you kind of feel about the overall staging of this scene? It felt like this was sort of yet another sequence in this season that was just allowed to sort of build and grow and go to some strange and ultimately horrifying and then hilarious places.
0: You know, I really kind of built up this place in my mind, like, wow, you know, I, I believe we can assume that the, the place that we went to here in Buckhorn was uh, the, the the coordinates that we've been hearing about, uh, maybe even the coordinates that have been posted at Bill Hastings' website, the Search for the Zone, which, by the way, Darren, like our, those coordinates that we found and talked about a couple week, weeks ago, no longer on his website. The, the, the show, which presumably runs that website, has taken those coordinates off which I guess might mean that it's just no longer in play based on what we saw last night. But I kind of built it up in my mind as this sort of like really like mysterious, maybe woodsy place. Um, I believe that the the exact coordinates like on on the website kind of like evoked something called Lookout Mountain or something like that. Um, So yeah, I imagine it was in the woods. I imagine maybe it was this uh, exotic cabin someplace. I thought we were going to get something like that. No, it's just (laughs) kind of like this hiding in plain sight, derelict, neglected piece of property on the outskirts of Buckhorn. But yet, like, ultimately a perfect quintessential Lynchian scuzzy place of sort of fallen, wasted industry. Um, this really kind of like lonesome, like like scary place a little bit. But yeah, it's like hiding in daylight. It's surrounded by a fence. Inside this fence, we see kind of like an abandoned old building, um, like a one floor kind of thing that looks like a house or maybe an office house, uh, but that's been kind of long deserted. You see all of these sort of like freight containers it's surrounded by a quintessential Twin Peaks icon thing associated with uh, with Black Lodge entities, uh, telephone poles and power lines. Um, and so you can hear the sizzle of electricity all around it. So definitely a sign that you're in a, a Twin Peaks supernatural space. You know, we got Gordon. We got Albert. We had Diane, they brought Diane with them for some reason. I don't know why. Um, Detective Mackie, uh, Mackley, and uh, and Bill Hastings, and and Agent Tammy, they all showed up in their cars uh, to investigate this place. Uh, I like the part where, like, like watching David Lynch get out of the car with this big gun drawn was just a funny little thing unto itself. Like, just like this. David Lynch like can we just talk a little bit about like Gordon Cole is just like the, maybe one of the great Mary Sue characters now in all of pop culture this, like, one of our great directors has created this heroic archetypal figure for him to play out and participate in his own Where He gets to do things, make jokes, hang out with, with hot women, carry guns, solve mysteries. Like, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a total wish fulfillment fantasy for Lynch, and I love it. I love it. And so uh, th- they arrive at this place, and um, one of the first mysterious things they see and i was surprised that they saw it, that they all saw it in their own way is that they saw one of the woodsmen prowling this area kind of like i i got a vibe like he kind of serves as a sort of like, you know, one of those junkyard dogs that is like, you know, mean junkyard dogs that is kind of used to sort of protect a, uh, a place like this. And I, and I think that that might actually be an appropriate illusion because I'm getting the sense that these woodsmen are like what we call in mythology, like, you know, threshold guardian. They protect places. They serve certain like, you know, the the mythic hero. Um I'm no longer certain that they're entirely quote unquote bad, but but we'll see about this. So they immediately see one of these people lurking around, and 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 Gordon goes like, "Do you do you see that, Albert?" And I I couldn't get the sense, Darren. Maybe you have an opinion on this. Whether or not these entities are familiar to our Blue Rose agents, yes. if they if they know of them or if they've been tracking them, I I think it's a possibility. But we got you know we know that they saw. Uh, the, the one uh, like lurking behind uh, that that house, we would later see in this scene that um, Diane and possibly Agent Tammy saw another one that would ultimately sneak up on Bill Hastings. We would later learn that they all kind of forgot seeing them, which is an interesting idea. But I know that we're getting our ha- head of ourselves, so. Uh, Cole and Albert like decide to draw their guns and they enter into the fence. Tammy has gotten out of Bill Hastings when when he visited this place, you know, and saw Major Briggs. It was at a place just 15 or 20 feet beyond the, the, the fence. So Gordon Cole and Albert go inside this space. They wade in. Albert stops. Gordon goes a little bit further. He starts hearing uh, with the sizzle of electricity, kind of faint, but the deeper Cole gets and gets, and, and the closer he gets to this house. Now that sizzle starts to just build and it turns into almost like a stormy sound, perhaps something that's magnified by his uh, two hearing aids, uh, his extrasensory adaptation devices. And then he looks to the sky and he sees something. And Darren, can you describe what Gordon Cole sees in the sky?
1: Oh, oh, yes, sure, Jeff. I can describe it no problem. It's very straightforward. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, something you see every day. P- perfect handoff. Um, one thing One thing that I would just add add to uh, your description is as Gordon and Albert were stepping into this space, Gordon turned to Albert and said something the the line could be read as something that we need to focus on or not. What he said was think there's one in there Albert, and the implication there seems to be like think there's one what, like one what, is this something they've seen before? Is he referring to the woodsman? Is he referring to something else? That that really kind of stuck in my head. So Gordon Gordon kind of looks up and he begins to kind of move. He does this interesting sort of like front step, back step, front step, back step. It it kind of put me in mind of the kind of strange chrono chopped up way that uh, Dale Cooper was moving around inside of the purple room, the strange way that time seems to always kind of flow around the woodsman. One of the things that I loved in this season, and I've talked about this before, the mixture of janky old school special effects. Effects and truly remarkable transcendent special effects was really on display in this scene because the woodsman was literally just sort of fading in and out. It, it, one of the oldest special effects in movie history, just he was kind of dissolving, but everything around him wasn't. But then you had this wormhole, for lack of a better word, open up in the sky, and I thought that was truly just incredible. It seemed to be kind of swirling around, consuming all of the clouds, consuming the sky itself you know you had this great close up on Gordon the the light around him just becoming so bleached out the fact that we were looking at the face of David Lynch made it just feel as if there was some remarkable you know transcended experience happening here he sort of raises up his hands this is when you have that incredible shot far far away where you see Gordon Cole kind of moving and nobody else moving the there was a kind of darkness at the end of Of that wormhole in the sky Through that darkness We got one brief Incredibly haunting shot Of three of the woodsmen At the top of a set of stairs The look of where they were You know It it kind of brings up That kind of The the sort of ruined convenience store Where they were hanging out In part eight Uh, It also looks a little bit like uh, The room above the convenience store From Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me Um, Very clearly to me does not look like a place where Major Briggs would have been hanging out. I'm not sure if, if we're meant to assume <laughs> that, you know, have, have the woodsmen kind of moved in and redecorated? Have they kind of altered the <laughs> the dimension that the wormhole is, is going towards? But they seem to be there kind of waiting. For a moment, Jeff, because they were sort of like like all aligned on the stairs, I really thought we might get some kind of Busby Berkeley dance number with them on the stairs. Like, you know, they all kind of jump down. <laughs> that that does not happen. Instead, that that single image will live in our nightmares forever because there was a brief moment of Gordon seeming to kind of flip in and out of our dimension and uh, I love that uh, you kind of called this out in your initial write up on the show Albert was sort of there almost as this kind of Horatio figure or this 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 Watson figure someone to kind of ground his friend he kind of pulled him back and I, I, I found that to be you know just as a, a framing of their relationship I found it so interesting that in in this case, Gordon was the guy who might have just literally gone through with no no extra thought and that Albert was sort of there to kind of ground him. I, I loved that little character beat just mixed in with all of this.
0: Your description of that reminds me of something that happened at our screening experience that might be worth bringing into the conversation because before the screening We got some introductory remarks from Sabrina Sutherland, the executive producer of Twin Peaks, uh, the person who was tasked with bringing all of this big production to life. And she had mentioned that David wanted her to read us a poem um, before this, this showing to put us in the right frame of mind. And I thought the poem was interesting because we all kind of know it. Through the dark of future past, the magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds, fire, walk with me. This episode, of course, uh, technically titled or unofficially titled, There's Fire Where You're Going, but here we kind of see um, our magician... Uh, David Lynch looking through a portal that might be into the future, might be into the past, maybe someplace in between, seeing total darkness and then peering through it and seeing those dirty hobo guys, what the dirty bearded men, I think he would later call them in the episode. And, you know, waving at them, you know, maybe Maybe he wants to see this. Maybe he wants to go to there. Uh, we don't know, but I thought that poem was perhaps very appropriate to that moment in particular. What I was struck by, by that image of that portal, is that it kind of visually alludes to all sorts of very familiar occult symbolism, Mm -hmm. that the the spiral, the portal into cosmic horror. Um, I I don't know about you, Darren, but I was actually reminded of True Detective and the visions of Rust Cole, who would often look to the sky and see swirls of birds opening, uh, forming that kind of same kind of swirl shape, which he would take to be some kind of portal opening into some cosmic horror place. And in fact, that whole um, season was sort of about uh, this sort of like cosmic uh, nihilist in Rust Cole almost wanting to see and experience some kind of proof of great cosmic horror that would sort of affirm his complete bleak uh, belief system, and then that story is ultimately about busting that idea and, and maybe saying that uh, that isn't a great thing, Rust Cole. Um, time is not a flat circle, or is it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I do wonder, as we talk, I talk about a little bit in my written recap, and we won't go into here, if maybe, just maybe... Lynch was sort of in uh, Lynch and Mark Frost were referencing to uh, these sort of pop culture illusions or, or connecting with them and commenting on them um, for the purpose of sort of reflecting on either a, the the legacy of twin peaks or just the sort of like dark pop culture that we have and what that might be doing to us and what kind of dark, bleak, cynical attitudes or romances it's, it's, it's cultivating in us. So this is all to say, I, I, I love this scene. It was crazy. And it got wilder and weirder even after Albert pulled him back.
1: So, yes, um, Gordon and Albert notice a headless body. Uh, as you so often do when you're just kind of like walking through uh, the space in between worlds. Um, it is indeed the headless body of Ruth Davenport. It only took 10 episodes to track that down. So, guys, they are solving things, okay? Never never say that this show is just setting up mysteries and not solving them. Um, as they were sort of uh, noticing that she had some coordinates written on her arm, more coordinates, Um Hopefully for hopefully, those coordinates will, will will lead to some other homeowner who will get very upset about all the Twin Peaks fans walking around their land, um, which I believe is what happened with, <laughs> with the last set of, of, of coordinates. Meanwhile, we sort of cut outside of the fence. Diane has noticed the sort of, I, I loved your, your description of the kind of guard dog woodsman who's sort of slowly approaching Detective Mackley's car. This was another moment that played for simultaneous horror and conversation comedy the scariness of this creature's approach was matched only by the hilar again the hilarity and like i don't talk about the special effects to say that they're bad i say that like they're being used perfectly because there's something so simple about the kind of fade in fade out body effect that lynch used here and ultimately indeed although we don't see the woodsman We certainly feel his presence. There's a close-up on Bill Hastings. He's kind of moving the way that those poor folks in the black-and-white sequence of episode eight were moving when the Abraham Lincoln woodsman had his hand over theirs, and although we don't see it, his head explodes, and Detective Mackley is quite shocked. Uh, Everyone sort of assembles at the car. Mackley's calling for backup. Diane just kind of deadpans. There's no backup for this. We see a single we see a single shot of Matthew Lillard missing the top half of his head. We will miss you, sir. You did great stuff this season. And we cut back to Gordon He just sort of looks at it and says, He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I have to say, is one of the funniest moments of this season, right after a truly just disgusting shot. I I went back and and looked at it again, still not quite sure how they achieved that shot of the upper half of his head being gone. It looked like sort of a mixture of practical with maybe some digital, but really horrifying um, I, I, I sort of like Jeff that you know the sort of button on Buckhorn this week they all kind of had a nice reconnoitering back in Detective Mackley's office um, you know as we continue to track just what Diane is up to we saw her kind of very obviously memorizing the coordinates that were on Ruth Davenport's arm uh, Albert saw that it, it made me wonder if there is if we're being teased to some reckoning between those two characters specifically you know they've developed this kind of funny repartee of you know her telling Albert to go fuck off but I do wonder if there's some interesting conflict that is sort of simmering there that we might see play out soon and then they all had coffee which I thought was a nice which was a nice note to sort of wrap uh buckhorn on
0: Yes. The policeman's dream, Darren. The policeman's dream. Uh, um, Coffee, donuts. And if you could smoke with it, that would be just kind of even better, at least if you're Diane.
1: Jeff, uh, fair to say, both Hastings are dead. The Morgans are definitely not coming for dinner. So let's leave uh, the tragedy behind (laughs) let's leave the tragedy behind in Buckhorn. Uh, I want to shift over to the town of Twin Peaks. Very eventful uh, happenings there this week. We kind of talked a lot about some of our frustrations and just, you know, the the unpleasantness of uh, Part 10, which was just such an episode rife with physical abuse and these just, like, really mediocre dudes beating up on wives, on grandmothers. You know, we we talked a lot about our sort of desire. To see, and I love that you always kind of refer to it as this kind of Pentecostal vengeance this idea that the spirit of Laura Palmer could kind of, you know, be this guiding light, certainly for um, some of the women of Twin Peaks. Um, I felt like, you know, this was the episode where we saw Becky Burnett go kind of full firewalk with me, Laura Palmer. You know, we we sort of recall yeah. Laura as the sort of victim and one, th- one of the great things about that film is it gave us so many more of her sort of, so, so much more awareness of the multiplicity of her emotions and just Becky kind of on this furious, uh, you know, cuckolded uh, vengeance trip, she discovers that her husband, Stephen, has been sleeping. With someone who we'll get to in a second, because her identity is pretty fascinating. Um, she calls up her mom. Her mom drives over through a you know quick variety of things. Uh, Shelly winds up on the hood of the car, telling Becky not to go, where, <laughs> not to go wherever she's going. Um, you know, great work, G- great hood of car work this week by Madchen Amick, who had to sort of really sell the
0: melodrama <laughs> of this scene. Um, <laughs> Becky, Becky drives. Off. Off, and then I'm, I'm gonna let you continue narrating this but can we just momentarily dote on so shelly jumps on the hood of the car becky don't drive off what are you doing like becky executes this total stunt man stunt car <laughs> maneuver <laughs> like like the the car kind of pulls like i don't know 180 degrees shelly goes flying off of it and her shoes go flying off of her feet. Did you see that? That was so <laughs> awesome and hilarious. It was
1: it was incredible, and that must have taken so long to plan out. Or knowing the way Lynch works, <laughs> maybe it just happened, and it was a perfect accident. One Be- take. One take. One take. <laughs> Becky goes. Uh, d- based on my interviews with with the cast, it sounds like there's there there are fewer takes than uh, you might think, David Fincher. Um, but uh, uh there was <laughs> Becky goes driving off. Off. up walks carl carl's like oh, shelly what what what's going on here um y- you know she asks for help and in the greatest scene in anything that has ever involved scenes carl pulls out what looked like a dog whistle whistles and up drives his volkswagen bus. <laughs> and and it turns out, and Jeff, you actually kind of like, like whispered this to me in the theater, inside of his bus, he has a whole kind of mobile command center, including coffee and cigarettes, <laughs> and a ham radio with which he can, with, with which he clearly quite often communicates with the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. I mean, Harry Dean Stanton, like Carl, I, I just, I was so captivated by all of this. It put a smile on my face. Face.
0: But, like, look, like in Twin Peaks, like, I thought what happened in last night's episode of Twin Peaks was really interesting. You, you really get a sense of a theme that, that Lynch talks about a lot in his work, especially his 90s work, where he films like Wild at Heart, to some extent, Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me and Lost Highway. Are responses to what he likes to call, like, the world is going crazy. And you, you get the sense of rising planetary psychosis um, in Twin Peaks. You know, things are starting to go crazy, people are losing their minds, Darren. You know, They'll come back to that idea but in twin peaks particular the the response of becky to the revelation of her husband's betrayal or latest betrayal seems to like just trigger uh this move from, from from victim for her to just total bat shit furious Anger. She she snaps, and there was something really delightful and cathartic about seeing her go on this sort of v for vendetta vengeance trip. But she definitely was also not in control of her mind, Mm -hmm. and I think that's something very important to consider. I think in Lynch's sort of regard of anger and vengeance, and if we get to this idea of the fiery unholy spirit of Laura Palmer. Um, inflaming everyone and 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 inspiring a world to go and get their vengeance. I mean, you could understand why they would want to do that. There are a lot of people in this town in this world of Twin Peaks now that are, should be very motivated for that, including poor Miriam, Miriam who we found out like lives um, in the opening shot of this show. Like you know, she d- d- didn't get blown up in her trailer. She managed to crawl out and crawl through the forest and get some help from some good Samaritan boys who are playing ball. There, there's a lot of people and, you know, she's going to want some justice too. And we now understand that she's going to probably set the sheriff's department on the trail of Richard Horn. But there's a lot of people who are motivated for, for, for revenge and justice including, you know, the spirit of Laura Palmer, but I'm also wondering whether or not their model of vengeance, the psychosis, um, if it involves getting in your car and recklessly driving and nearly killing your mom and firing guns wildly, there's a med- there's a paradox there. There's a meditation on that. Like there's there's justice that needs to happen, but people can lose their minds with it, right? And so, but just in general, like Becky's sort of response to this news um, seems to trigger off a sort of larger condition in Twin Peaks where there's just a lot of crazy stuff going on. But in the midst of this, in the midst of this, there is some goodness. There is some heroism. We do have kids who were, are going to help out a, a fallen traveler on the road and play Good Samaritan. And we have Carl Rod, who is like rushing to Shelley's aid, you know, um, and to, to, to help her. And then her, her, her daughter's like gone batshit crazy. Yeah, he pulls out his whistle and calls for the Mobile. and he gets <laughs> in his and then, like, and then he gets in that command. Like, yeah, I love that idea the command center of his VW bus. I mean, he's like the commander-in-chief, the unofficial mayor of Twin Peaks. And, you know, he's like got this direct line to the cops, whatever. In a, in a summer of superheroes, Carl Rod <laughs> calling for his Carl Mobile is like my favorite superhero moment, you know, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was great stuff. It was,
1: it, it was wonderful. This scene also just revealed, you know, very, very, very carefully and cleverly something that had been, you know, discussed ever since we first knew who, who Becky's mom was. Uh, full confirmation now: her father is Bobby Briggs. There was a sort of like sequence of Shelley talking to Bobby. We'll kind of like dig into that later, and you know how that kind of fits into the sort of overall, just you know, family tree of, of Twin Peaks. But I, I do. I to call out, uh, Jeff, because um, you you'd kind of pointed this out to me afterwards. Um, you know, Becky goes, shoots up the door. We sort of have that, like, haunting shot kind of following down the stairwell. Refers to what you were talking about earlier. Interesting mixture of... St- Lots of stairwell imagery in this episode, and indeed we see that Stephen's paramour is none other than Gersten Hayward, the younger sister of Donna Hayward, uh, who is probably Doc, who who will not be appearing in this season. From everything that we've heard, um, and I, you know, w- what's interesting is that Gersten, who I think was essentially, you know, in her maybe not even a, a tween yet in the original series, was played once again by the great Alicia Witt, someone who's been on pretty much every TV show you could think of from Sopranos to Friday Night Lights you were sort of saying there's some interesting stuff there I don't know how much we want to dig into it but it, it seems like her brief appearance really seemed to kind of activate some interesting thoughts for you
0: Well, what I would definitely encourage people is to check out the work of the great Twin Peaks scholar, John Thorne, who I believe has done some really great writing on the significance of Gersten um, as she pertains to the imagery of Laura Palmer, Homecoming Queen, and the, 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 the Miss Twin Peaks pageant. And Gersten's like one... Um, uh, most famous moment in season two, and forgive me if I don't really have great command of this moment, but I believe that the Haywards are having the Palmers and Sarah over for dinner, and Kristen and her and, and the middle sister kind of perform for them and perform a song, and I forget what it is, but she's kind of dressed in sort of like a princess crown and all of that, and it kind of so she the imagery of her and what she's associated with points us once again to the reality of women in Twin Peaks and this sort of like, you know um, the fact that this is a place where women are exploited and seems to activate some larger cosmic villainy that preys on them and their suffering um, and wishes to, to desire and consume them or possess them, etc. cetera. Um, so she, and to find out now that she kind of grew up and, and didn't maybe turn out all that well, messing around with a sparkle, addicted, unemployed, scruffy, scuzzy, uh, abusive guy like Stephen, you know, uh, makes me wonder kind of about her and worry about her. But um, And I'm wondering if we'll, we'll, we'll find out more. But, but John Thorne has written a lot about that idea and her. And I think you could search for his work online. So I I would just defer to him on that. So Becky goes and shoots up Gersten's door, cut back to the sheriff's department, where switchboard operator Maggie is starting to receive all of these calls, (laughs) uh, 911 calls. And, you know, initially, Darren... Viewing this episode through my theory of a world gone crazy, I initially kind of thought that she was suddenly receiving phone calls from all over Twin Peaks about other things that were going on. In retrospect, I think I analyze that scene. I understand that scene more as probably everyone in that apartment building is calling the sheriff's station. Uh There's shots fired inside the building. That said, this idea of a town going crazy is brought to life um, in, in in a follow up scene where later that night, Bobby, Shelley, and Becky are at the Double R, and they're kind of debriefing all of this. And uh, you know, we are presented with a Becky who is a, a paradox. She hates Stephen. She wants to be rid rid of him. She wants him dead. But I love him. I can't leave him. He's just going through a bad time right now. Very classic, tragic, like abused, battered wife syndrome. Bobby and Shelly, we we don't really have great insight into the current status of their relationship. That They seem to be on somewhat friendly terms and they care for Becky. You get the sense that Shelly is more involved in Becky's life than Bobby. They might have differences of opinion on, on how to parent her. Um, we get the sense that Shelly is very quick to give her money, to help her out. You get the sense that Bobby is a little bit more reluctant in that regard. Mm-hmm. All of this is playing out as they're discussing these things under the watchful eye of Norma who has a quiet, presence throughout this whole thing we get these cutaways to her just watching them and her face full of concern, full of judgment. We understand, we remember earlier in the season when she was counseling Shelley on what to do about Becky, I think that she was encouraging Shelley. She had very a lot of grace and sympathy and empathy for for Shelley and and her heartbreak for her daughter and just wanted to do everything possible for her. But I think you also get the sense that Norma knows or feels that at some point you just got to let her go. You got to let her kind of fend for herself. You just can't keep enabling her with her money. You wonder if Bobby might kind of agree with that philosophy. But another interesting thing that is playing out in the subtext of all of this is that Shelly and Bobby, you know, like beholding their problem child daughter. You just have to wonder what's going on in their heads as they look at this girl and see probably versions of themselves yes. when they were younger. All of Becky's dramas, all of her issues with drugs with being, you know, like pertains to Bobby's drama as a kid, being a battered wife and having no way out, kind of completely playing to Shelley's issues and the joint drama of Bobby and Shelley conspiring against Leo Johnson. Their own, like, poor wrong-headed ways of dealing with their own dramas. Like, you know, you you got the sense of two parents that are sort of like want the best for their daughter that maybe are drawing upon their experience to want to guide her and and help her avoid her mistakes, but also maybe feeling that they lack the moral authority to do that too. Like, who are they to talk? And, And at some point during all of this, you know, Bobby finally steps up. And so Bobby basically says, hey, look, Becky, You're going to avoid jail time for going up into an apartment and taking out a gun and shooting up the place. Um, But you got to pay for the door. You got to pay for damages. And Shelly kind of also makes it clear that, you know, it would be great if you could stay away from Stephen, too. Um, Becky kind of draws the line at all of this. First of all, she has no money. She can't pay for it. And she, she doesn't want to leave Stephen um, but in an interesting scene, Bobby agrees to loan, you know, Shelley initially offers to pay for it, but Becky doesn't want to take any more of her mom's money because she understands that she's bleeding her mom dry. And then Bobby steps up and basically says, I'll, I'll loan you the money, but you got to pay me back. Becky's attitude in this whole scene is really kind of fascinating. She's all these contradictions, contradictions that that make sense when we, what we know about battered women and battered people in general and their relationship to their abusers. But, but she has enough of this awareness to know that like, a, I can't keep on taking money from my mom. I'm making her go broke, but she can't get out of a life that keeps her kind of dependent on this as well. And then she has this other great moment of clarity at the end of this scene where she goes, oh, oh, mom, mom, I I, I, I threw you off of my car and you almost died. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it was like some kind of sanity after her own psychotic break with her head getting away from her suddenly is slowly returning to her and like oh oh yeah that i'm sorry <laughs>
1: Jeff, like I, I love everything you're saying about this scene, and just the the resonance of everything happening here with what we know about these characters. You know, I was very struck just thinking, like about Becky. Here she is. You know, she is the granddaughter of Major Briggs. She is the daughter of Laura Palmer's ex boyfriend. You know, just with with just looking at her parents. You know, she has found herself in an abusive relationship. One thinks of Shelley and Leo in the original series. Um, You know, she is uh, dating someone who seems to be a major drug addict. One thinks about some of the issues that Bobby himself was facing in the original run of the show. You know, the character's awareness of all this, I think, is just kind of interesting. And we sort of end this interesting scene of this family that, you know, we don't quite know. Are they divorced? Are, are, Are they separated? Certainly, it's fair to say that this relationship between Bobby and Shelley is no longer active. We end this sort of interesting splintered but together family domestic moment at the Double R Diner, a place that has never changed and will never change. Double R without end. Amen. We end this with Red, of all people, this sort of local, seemingly supernatural crime boss drug dealer. Drug runner, maybe, is a more uh, apt way of, uh, of putting it. He kind of shows up outside Shelly runs out to kiss him. And I, I, what I love here is just, you know, the framing of this, that when Shelly and Bobby were first together, Bobby was involved in the drug trade. And for, for for from what we've seen so far, is no longer that, is in fact, you know, is, is in fact an, an officer of the law. And so Shelly kind of taking up with someone who almost seems to be this sort of dark alternate universe version of Bobby, not just because Balthazar Getty seems to only play alternate, universe versions of characters within the world of uh, David Lynch was was quite interesting, I thought. I, I felt like there was just a lot of interesting resonance for, you know, Twin Peaks history kind of bubbling throughout this scene. And, and of course, you know, as we've kind of had this table set for us with all these kind of interesting kind of like, you know, subtextual ideas and these interesting allusions, suddenly a shot rings out and in an episode that featured David Lynch himself reaching towards a wormhole in the sky, somehow what followed was Powers of Ten Stranger because you had Bobby (laughs) in full kind of, you know, Deputy Briggs uh, mode, runs outside, discovers that the gunshots came from a car with, you know, thinking about a sort of splintered family dynamic. A woman is yelling at her husband saying, how could you carry a gun? Their young son apparently just grabbed the gun and started shooting uh you know full shout out to the great data ashbrook in this scene who just had to do a lot with his facial reactions there was a great shot of him kind of looking at the child and the, the the boy, sort of posing in this incredible, sort of almost like you know, you know, tough <laughs> tough child soldier or like you know, kid trying to look like a badass kind of like stance. And there was an interesting like you know, you know, examination of that kid and Bobby kind of looks over at the father and just you know, a lot of interesting sort of moments here. All the while, honk 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 honk. This this car behind them will not stop honking, and I mean. <laughs> <laughs> to, to think about funny, scary moments, the, the the horror that Bobby finds in that car. Th- there's a woman driving. She's screaming, "What are you doing? Why is this happening?" And she starts talking about how you know her. You know she, she her, her, is her daughter in the car. Her uncle is joining us, and. The, the little girl, the sick girl, just sort of comes up like, like, like some zombie from Fear the Walking Dead or something like that. She's spewing vomit out. And all the while, I mean, Dana Ashbrook's reactions to this are sort of strangely not as crazy as you might think, but 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 exactly as confused and bemused as we are. Um, you know, Jeff, you, you sort of like approached this episode under this theory that this is in some ways Lynch's reaction to a lot of the stuff that followed in his wake, the sort of 90s supernatural horror and, you know, even kind of right up to today. It it just feels like that scene in that car is like every opening sequence of The X-Files Reduced down to one, right? Like, it's just like, what is happening here? What is this strangeness? Is it supernatural? Is it viral? Is it something? I mean, that, that whole extended car jam scene I thought was just pure vintage Lynch, right? Like, just every tone happening all at once.
0: <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, the whole section together with Bobby Briggs to go from this sort of, like, soapy melodrama domestic stuff with Shelly and Bobby and their child and red and the love triangle that's implied there gunshot mood shatter lights go off in the double R. Now we shift all of a sudden segue into a completely different tone, this sort of, dark horror TV show yeah like an opening segment right out of the X-Files that that girl and you know just this sort of these progressive stages of human misery and evil you almost kind of feel like like Bobby's on this sort of like real micro Heart of Darkness Odyssey towards some kind of like apocalyptic revelation. You know, he encounters another troubled family with a little child that I almost wondered if he was seeing some kind of mini me in that little boy who got his hands on a gun that his dad just recklessly left uh. behind. Then there's just this woman who's just laying on a, a ha- car horn, just like, what are you doing? You got you, you were expecting this confrontation with a woman with a person who is just the epitome of selfishness and rudeness, who has no heart for, like, what is happening in front of her, this sort of, like, this spectacle of, of human misery going on in front of her. Like, get out of my way, I gotta get home! And and when, when Bobby comes up to her to interrogate her, you know, she initially kind of plays out that role, but you realize that her own sort of, like, selfish rant is this, like she's out of her own mind over her own crisis that is happening. Her daughter is like having some kind of reaction or sickness to something. I, I wondered if it was some kind of drug OD. We know that sparkle is having some, people are reacting poorly to sparkle if they're not having kind of like cosmic visions of dimes hovering in the air they are they're, they're getting horrible rashes um, so maybe this is part of it maybe it's something else completely uh, different but yeah like Lynch presents this moment of this girl's sickness and so this, this, this woman has this very sick daughter and she's got to get her home or somewhere but the way that he like depicts this is like she's like laying down in the passenger side but she almost seems to almost Float upward and toward her mom, and Bobby's shocked reaction is is joined by the mom's reaction. She's ah 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 oh, ah! All of these like weirds, like horrified, like like semi-comic Lynch horrified you know Lynchian sounds, and then vomit is just sort of green, you know pea soup vomit is coming out of her mouth, which immediately gets me thinking about. Linda Blair and The Exorcist, yeah, all sorts of supernatural kind of like 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 demon possession uh, a pop that has come since the X Files. I was thinking, you know, in my 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 recap, I asked, is a hell mouth opening up underneath? Uh, a, A Twin Peaks, you know, that's a reference to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. This is all to say that you get the sense that something dark is intruding and creeping up and seeping into Twin Peaks all over the place through maybe a variety of means, through this outbreak of this drug, maybe some supernatural attack. If that was a reference to The Exorcist, it's appropriate because Twin Peaks seriously needs some kind of exorcism.
1: Yeah, it's it's so funny just sort of, you know, watching this show now that uh, Game of Thrones is back on and watching them both on the same night. Um, just because, uh, you know, I, I've sort of made the argument that in a weird way, Game of Thrones is this sort of very millennial positive show. Like it's it's kind of a show about how like the, like, the, the oldsters gotta go. They're so tied to sort of like these old ideas Ideas. and You know, now we're in this place where all the younger people are in charge and even like the youngest person on Game of Thrones, Leanna Mormont, is just, you know, so delightful and seems so much more focused on things than anyone else is. Um, and I love the idea that over here in Twin Peaks, it's like, well, the millennials in Twin Peaks are all awful. They're all on Sparkle or they're going around like, you know, beating up or, or, or they're going around beating up their grandmothers or, uh, you know, but gosh, like if the millennials are bad, the kids? The the current children in Twin Peaks are literally firing guns into the air or they are, like, vomiting up pea soup. I don't say this to mean that, like, David Lynch is somehow a grumpy old person. Like, quite the opposite. I, I think there's a lot of complicated stuff going on there. But I just love that here in Twin Peaks there's an interesting sense of, like, the sort of sliding spiral of the generations um, is something that seems to be very much kind of on their head. Um, Jeff, it's been... Uh, a long time. I don't know how we didn't get to this right at the top. There was like a secret map in this episode. How did you feel? Were you okay? Did you need like a moment to sort of like like chill out? There, there were a lot of there were a lot of signs and symbols on the map that Hawk was showing Sheriff Truman. And I I, I sort of worry that whenever there are literally on screen symbols, your head might go the way of a uh, Bill Hastings. Um, what did you think about the the very old but always current map that Hawk was uh, showing off? His- <laughs> his his a uh, good friend.
0: See now you know why these recaps take like a day for me to write. Cuz like I just spend like 3 hours like transcribing and drawing the symbols of the map on on my giant twin peaks notepad. Um, it's very thick right now. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things I thought, you know, like Hawk's map, this ancient scroll, a living thing he called it. So you kind of wondered if maybe every time it gets unrolled Um, It either changes or, at the very least, um, its symbols can apply to the ever-changing circumstances of our world. But the map was a fascinating thing, and um, Hawk was able to correlate... Um, uh, the, the place that was described in um, and, and Major Briggs' message in the little tube that, that they opened up a couple episodes ago. Um, I think that they know exactly where they're going. Um, there is no easy uh, map uh, road to it, um, but, but they know where they're going. The symbols on the map kind of described things like fire. Yeah,
1: and specifically, Jeff, fire that is more like modern-day electricity, which, is, which was sort of Hawk's description of the energy Energy symbol, Which, of course, you know, on a show that seems to argue that electricity is both a kind of magic and a kind of continuum to alternate dimensions is a statement that sort of looms large. Um, there was also like a lot of talk about corn and fertility and perhaps most... Interesting as far as like, you know, what is the overall story that's being told here? The idea of black fire, that there is something sort of dark that can sort of happen when you're mixing together all these symbols for perhaps the wrong reasons. You know, we recall that we, we we recall that deep down we still don't know what exactly Mr. C, what the sort of dark doppelganger of Agent Cooper what he wants. We know that he's after something represented by that symbol of the little Black Circle with Horns, which we saw here and which Hawk kind of cautioned us, you know, you don't even want to know what that is, which, of course, now we do, Hawk. Like, you know, thanks for thanks for putting that in our head, man. Um, But uh, I was very struck by the idea. And, you know, this is going to this is going to involve a lot of mythology stuff that I'm going to totally butcher. But I was very struck by. You know, fire in in Greek mythology all goes back to the tale of Prometheus, right? And this idea of you know bringing fire to the humans and the potential bad things that follow from that, or at least the bad things that happen to the person who does that. And I was wondering if is that some mythic story that's happening here? Is Mister C trying to get to the black fire? Does he want to use it for his own bad ends? It's very clear that at least Hawk says that you know this fire symbol, this modern day electricity, you know, needs to be used a certain way. I just, I found all of that interesting and compelling, perhaps kind of telling us stuff that we could have guessed, but it was really great to have it kind of laid out that way, I I thought.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, he, he mentioned the idea of intentionality is important. I mean, that, that, that fire, that kind of modern day electricity, it, it can be good with the right intentions. And that kind of speaks a little bit to... Uh, Lynch's own sort of historical perspectives on technology, you know, given his interest in spirituality and given um you know his his empathy for the suffering of the world and questioning of things like money you, you might wonder if he's anti-technology it's he actually no i mean he loves technology he loves tools he sees like nature and industry as hand in hand as sort of creation engine engines as as a means of artistry but they can be used wrong um and they and it's all about intent, so I love your analysis it's better than anything I could have come up with or or or, or have like at, at present, but the idea that maybe dirty Cooper is after that dark fire and wants to use it for something, maybe in concert with whatever that sort of like horned figure, which we might think is linked to the experiment. Um, I still think that he aspires to sort of bring the experiment into this world for some dark purpose, or quite the opposite. Maybe he's after he wants to destroy the experiment. I don't know exactly what Dark Cooper, uh, Dirty Cooper, is after. Mister C, that is Mister C. We learned at Comic Con that maybe Mister C is the best term for 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 Dirty Cooper. But yeah, what does he want with with with, with the Dark Fire? I think that's interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, there was a brief call from the Log Lady. We talked about. this uh, when we sort of discussed watching the premiere of Twin Peaks in a big crowd of, of, in in a big crowded theater um, just to see the log lady in a big crowd of people you could just hear a pin drop the, the emotions of that of course you know with the passing of, of, of the performer and just you know her sort of signposting that there's a fire where you're going um, you know again this this sense of, of kind of building towards something really a lot of interesting setup here Jeff uh, let's shift to Las Vegas uh, like a lot happening and yet you know p- perhaps less sort of noteworthy for the kind of grander arc than some of the stuff we've talked about so far, so maybe we'll kind of blast through it, but um, you know, each episode I I I know that we're all kind of like you know, the Dougie stuff, and is Dale Cooper coming back? I I am a huge fan of the Mitchum Brothers, and this was a wonderful showcase for them. I might even go so far as to say this is the Jim Belushi Emmy reel episode. Um, You know, in my dream, (laughs) in my my dream, of course, all 217 cast members get some kind of Emmy nomination next year, but we we sort of see the Mitchums. Again, their living situation is so hilarious. There's something so adolescent about them. You know, they're kind of both in their kind of like, you know, sleeping robes. They're they're pouring cereal for each other. They're they're drinking the, the, their orange juice. Um Belushi says that he's had this dream. He's kind of he seems uncertain about the whole kill Dougie plan. Uh Robert Nepper says, no, 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 like that's the plan. We'll feel a lot better, just a few hours. We see that uh, Dougie's having a meeting with Bushnell Mullins. This is another great showcase for Don Murray. Really, this was sort of like, also like the Don Murray showcase episode. He gets all these great lines about how battling buds in your corner and don't worry, even though that work you did drawing the ladders and stairwells all over those papers somehow led me to realize that this arson case, I've lost track of this whole insurance thing, but suffice it to say, it turns out that Dougie Work has actually provided a boon for the Mitchum brothers because Bushnell gives the, him a thirty million dollar check and says, "As a matter
0: of fact, they've asked to meet with you, <laughs> so why don't you go and deliver them this check?" But just, just, just real quick, but Bushnell's—I uh, I, I love how Bushnell's doing all the work, but somehow attributing it all to Dougie Jones. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, but like coming off of like I believe last week's episode where. Uh, where 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 Anthony was sent by T- Duncan Todd to pull this scam on the on the Mitchum brothers, um, and 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 telling them like hey like Dougie's like scamming you out of thirty million dollars, and you should maybe think about going to kill him, and that kind of sets them up to like want want to kill him, but but Bushnell like uh, essentially completely sabotages the Duncan Anthony plan first by intercepting the check that should have obviously gone to Duncan Todd and Anthony. But uh, so he kind of like uh, blows up that whole plan and, and, and sets everything right so yes. that the bitch brothers can actually get the check. So that, that, that will, but, but I love uh, Bushnell's sort of bragging about how he took out a secondary insurance policy on this policy in <laughs> particular so that paying out 30 million dollars doesn't break the company it's the the old Bushnell double down Bushnell
1: double (laughs) down uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) which I was great he was so proud of himself and I love this whole thing as we meet him he's doing the push-ups whatever but yes so the Mitchum brothers have requested a meeting with Dougie and, um, to, to praise him for his work, apparently, you know, Bushnell not realizing that the reason why they want to see Dougie is to kill him. But Bushnell puts the envelope in his pocket and, uh, and says, let's, let's, let's get you down to the car where they're going to pick you up and take you away. They go outside the building for, um, Cooper can, uh, before Dougie can get in, he's distracted by that music cue. Um, he looks over to the coffee shop and he sees Mike, the one, arm man, like, waving to him with his other arm, um like, from inside the coffee shop with red curtains behind him. And, and, and Dougie's immediately drawn to him. And, like, Bushnell's like, what are you doing? Cut to the aftermath of that scene. And now Dougie has this big box, and he's holding the box, and we have no idea what's in the box. Bushnell takes him to this car, that's being driven by the Mitchum Brothers' drivers, and they they think that they're en route to a restaurant to have a, a to break bread with the Mitchum Brothers. But instead, that car is being t- driven out to the desert where the Mitchum Brothers are 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 waiting to basically um, kill uh, Dougie. And uh, I just love this whole scene, the dread that's built through all it all uh, through all of it as 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 Dougie's being driven out into the middle of nowhere, he's not going to a restaurant. Um, He's being taken to his doom. How is he going to get out of this? Meanwhile, he's got this box in his lap and I'm immediately thinking, Darren, the end of seven mm-hmm. um the great David Fincher serial killer you know movie, where like you know, it takes place out there in the middle of the desert underneath power lines, interestingly enough, where the serial killer has has taken Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, the serial killer played by Kevin Spacey, and out of nowhere drives up this 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 FedEx van that brings a box and brad pitt's famous line like what's in the box what's in the box (laughs) gwyneth paltrow's severed head that's what it is yeah talk about losing your head so that and and that illusion completely works um so what's in what's in dougie's box and um if if maybe you could take it from here like dougie arrives he gets out of the car and and the mitchum brothers are, are are should should follow through on their assassination plot but But they're troubled by something. James Belushi's had a dream. Can you tell us about the dream, Darren?
1: He's had a dream. In the dream, this exactly happened. Dougie showed up. He had a cardboard box in his hand, and inside of that box, he tells his brother, was a cherry pie. At this point, his brother is just kind of like, God, can we just kill this guy already? I I, I love that, like, you know, <laughs> I think they literally kind of, like, dug him a-, a hole in the ground already. This is the most, like, straightforward, uh, you know, organized crime assassination in the history of Las Vegas. Or maybe Lynch is suggesting that this is just what happens all the time in Las Vegas. It's unclear. Um, so he goes over, he opens the box, and I, I loved kind of your comparison to Seven, Jeff. Like, it had not really occurred to me uh, before you uh, before you kind of mentioned it after we saw the episode. And the one thing I would say is um, if the end of Seven is one of the most emotionally traumatizing uh, sequences of box opening in movie history... This was the sort of like, you know, hilariously cleaned up G-rated version of that ending where Belushi opens the box, sees the cherry pie, and turns to his brother, and Belushi's line reading was so wonderful. It was like, cherry pie! <laughs> it was like some sort of cherry pie! At this point, both brothers are totally kerfuffled. Uh, Belushi sort of like uh, rifles through Dougie's pockets he he finds the check for 30 billion dollars and just sort of like i mean again just like like sort of a a cartoon character sidles over to his brother his knees seem to be kind of going weak holds up the check makes the same face that i assume david lynch made to mark frost when showtime gave them the budget for twin peaks and they just got kind of to start like they just got kind of to start like yelling and finally, Belushi turns back to Dougie and says, I love this guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love this guy. Oh, this guy God. that they hated, they wanted to kill. Like, I love this guy, just on a dime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, you know. We sort of see them. They're all hanging out together at some kind of fancy restaurant. You know, just some delightful bits of comedy here. And, again, you know, proving that things do really matter. And, you know, this isn't just all random stuff happening. We get a reappearance, probably the most unexpected reappearance of the season. Uh, the slot-obsessed lady shows up. <laughs> she says, Mr. Jackpots wanted to say thank you again. Her whole life's changed. Jeff, her son Denver, back in her life now. she got a dog. She's got a house. It's all thanks to Mr. Jackpots. You know, I just thought this was an unexpected ending for this. And, you know, again, to come off an episode that we had last week that was just so, like, dark and dour, I thought there was something really kind of lovely and sort of triumphant about this. Um, I will just kind of add very quickly something that has occurred to me amidst our ramblings. Uh, Candy and Andy and Sandy showed up. Um, Candy, again, sort of stealing the show. Do you recall, though, Jeff, what she said this time specifically was she was talking about how much traffic there was on the strip, which suddenly makes me, it it reminds me that there was another traffic jam that happened in this episode in Twin Peaks, the crazy horn scene and and everything. Just another interesting illusion. It's all traffic jams and stairwells this week. Uh, How did you kind of feel about just the sort of wrapping up of this uh, Vegas sequence, Jeff?
0: Well, uh, traffic is another Lynchian obsession. Uh, traffic jams also kind of reminds us of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me and the famous traffic jam where Leland and Laura were stuck behind a, a, a truck. And then like uh, Mike drives up and just starts barking at Leland. And Leland is honking, honking, honking. So all of these illusions are carrying forward. We remember the famous scene in Wild at Heart where Laura Dern's character is kind of reflecting on the problem of traffic. But yeah, I was... But in the context of this season and this episode in particular... It is interesting, the correlation between her complaining about traffic and the traffic jam up in Twin Peaks and then like, you know, stairwells in, in Buckhorn and and stairwells in Twin Peaks. There's all of these sort of interesting synchronicities that are happening. And I just the idea of synchronicity in general, I think, is is maybe just the idea to take away. And where is this all going uh, I don't know, but it's such a, it's such a joyous thing in an episode, which I think was all about not where, you know, delighting in not knowing where things are going. Because the thing I loved about this episode in particular was how these long scenes would start at point A and like get to a point Z that you could, you can't possibly imagine, you know, from, from the stuff in Buckhorn where they show up and their encounter with the black hole sun and the death of Bill Hastings, how that you know, what was going to happen there to the stuff with Bobby Briggs and Shelly and their daughter and the diner going from there to like, you know, barfing girl to the whole thing with like Dougie and how that resolve, or you think he's a goner. No, it's going to be this complete reversal of fortune. That's going to culminate with agent Cooper rediscovering one of his great loves cherry pie, like damn good pie. And he just loves it. He's scarfing it down. Like you just, that was i had no idea that 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 we were going to end at that place and it was it was it was perfect it was kind of beautiful and it kind of like summed up an episode where just the the, the these crazy journeys and storytellings ma- masterfully directed by lynch one of my favorite episodes of the year and um, the the show just owns me
1: owns oh, us completely seven episodes left excited to hear what everybody thought about this you can tweet at us he's at EW Doc Jensen I'm at Darren Franich not a doctor if you have even longer thoughts to share with us uh, you can email us at TwinPeaks at EW.com hey while you're at it if you like this show even half as much as we love Twin Peaks can let us know. Give us a rate and review on iTunes. We love hearing from you. Love hearing all of the thoughts from our listeners. And uh, yeah, check back again next week. Hopefully the fun will continue. Hopefully uh, we'll discover more of uh, Carl's particular superhero tricks in the next episode of Twin Peaks The Return. <laughs>